welcome to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly, and this is my co-host slash husband. Austin, what up? He is in just a mood of sorts. <laughs> what up? Okay. Um, so anyway. Happy Monday. Um, yeah, it is going to be Monday. And you know what? I got a message for you guys. <laughs> Let's hear it. You don't have to be for everyone, all right? I'm not for everyone. You may listen to this podcast and think, You're for me. That guy's a prick. You may think, <laughs> That guy's not funny. You may think, God, I wish he'd shut up. I'm not for everybody. You don't have to be for everybody either, okay? Have a fantastic week. Kelly, get into the show, babe. Oh, man. All right. Well, today I wanted to do a quick intro before we get started because I realized we have about 800 listeners now. Dynamite. I know. It's crazy. And... Many Shout out of you, to all your listeners. Many of you know us already, but some of you may not. So just for a quick background, I just want to introduce ourselves super fast. I am Kelly. I'm a hairstylist, and I own a salon with one of my best friends. We have two kids together and two dogs. And the way this podcast came about, honestly, was thanks to COVID. Um, the one good thing to come out of COVID, <laughs> but back in March when everything shut down, I wasn't able to work, and I got so bored. So I thought... I would turn my love of true crime into a YouTube channel, but that was way too much work. Beyond just researching the case, I would do my hair and my makeup, which just took way too much time. And honestly, I don't even do my hair and makeup that often anyway, but um, I'd have to make sure the lighting was all good. And then I'd have to edit and stitch the video together. It was just way too much work. So I don't know who suggested to it to me, it might have been you, Austin. Probably so. Probably. Um, to just extract the audio from those videos and turn it into a podcast. And holy cow, this is so much easier and allows me to genuinely enjoy this whole process. Um, so Austin, you can... I sell healthy meals, I sell supplements and ice cream. And <laughs> I'm here. You are here, which was not ever It wasn't ever intended. I don't even know how we got started with you on Kelly here. Kelly wanted to tell stories... And have somebody to bounce back a little, but get a little reaction out of so she wasn't talking to a wall. Yeah, yeah, I, I did. I wanted it to feel like less of me just telling a story and someone to react. And you have absolutely no like true interest in true crime. So a lot of the stories, every of the stories, <laughs> I tell you, All you know nothing about. I know nothing about them, and I just kind of give my input here and there. And some of you think, gosh, Austin's thoughts are relatable. And some of you think, just shut up. But anyways, without further ado... Yeah, so that's how this came about. Um, and now I can feel it evolving. Oh my God. <laughs> Move it away so if you're choking. Friends, Ashley, who is celebrating her birthday today. So happy birthday, Ashley. Happy birthday, Ashley. I had no idea about this guy until Ashley brought him to my attention, but today we are talking about Robert Berdella, also known as the Kansas City Butcher. So Robert Berdella was born on January 31st, 1949 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. He had one brother who was seven years younger, and his family was Catholic and very religious. Robert and his brother regularly attended Sunday school, and his family was deep, deeply committed to the church. His dad worked as a die setter for Ford Motor Company, and his mom, Mary, was a homemaker. So growing up, Robert was a bit of a loner. He was super smart and did very well academically, but he didn't really have any friends and never played outside or played sports. He wore really thick glasses because he was very nearsighted, and he took medication for high blood pressure. So kids often would make fun of him and bully him at school. 
His younger brother, Daniel, however, was a very talented athlete. These boys could not be more different, and their dad often reminded Robert of that. He viewed Robert's disregard for sports as a failure and constantly compared Robert to Daniel. It's even been reported that their dad was more than just emotionally abusive and would resort to beating the boys with a leather strap. Holy cow. As if it doesn't take enough toll on you to, like, be different than your sibling and have a sibling you have to, like, live up to. Yeah, constantly compete with. You also have a dad beating you over it. Yeah. Jeez. And these things are really important to note because everything we do in our adult lives stems from how we were conditioned as children. And it's not uncommon for children who are abused to later lead lives of intense abuse, violence, and crime because they don't know the appropriate coping mechanisms, right? So it's not an excuse, but it just kind of gives you an idea of like where this comes from. So in his early teenage years, he began to gain a little more confidence, but his confidence would often come off as arrogance, especially towards people he felt who were below him, particularly women. Robert did have a girlfriend at one point, but the relationship did not last long because he finally accepted the fact that he was a homosexual. He kept this a huge secret, though, likely because he knew what kind of backlash he would probably receive from his dad. Um... So, yeah, he kept that a secret for a while. Makes sense. But on Christmas Day of 1965, his father suffered a heart attack at the young age of 39 while they were visiting family in Canton, Ohio. A couple days later, Robert drove himself home, and when he arrived, his family told him that his father had just died at the hospital. So struggling with his grief, Robert immersed himself into his religion and began reading about other beliefs as well, which ultimately backfired and led him into this like cynicism towards religion altogether. So that same year, Robert discovers the movie The Collector. In this movie, the main character stalks and abducts an attractive young woman, holds her captive in his basement. And after a few weeks, the woman gets really sick, and despite his efforts to keep her alive, she dies. Robert says that this movie in particular had a lasting effect on him, and in addition to him becoming later known as the Kansas City Butcher, he would also become known as the Collector. So you can probably see where this is going. Oh, creepy. Robert graduated from high school with excellent grades, which got him into the Kansas City Art Institute where he hoped to become a college professor. So he moves to Kansas City, and during his first year, he was a very talented student, and teachers really liked him. But by his second year, he became more vocal about his anti-authoritarian views, and he became friends with a group of misfits who introduced him to the world of drugs and drug trafficking. And this is really disturbing, but he also started dabbling in animal abuse, which we know is just a gateway into the realm of serial killing. But he tortured a duck and a chicken in front of his classmates. And at one point, he also experimented with tranquilizers on a dog. That alone, before I find out anything else about this guy, makes me just hate him. Because people who abuse dogs and kids deserve a hellish, miserable death, in my opinion. Uh, I agree. Yeah, not much to say. At the age of 19, Robert had his first run-in with police when he tried selling meth to an undercover officer. It always cracks me up when I hear about people getting in trouble because they tried selling drugs to an undercover officer. Like, oof, just the ultimate mess up. Jeez. 
She's not a smart criminal. No, not a smooth criminal. criminal. No, not at all. But you deserve that. He was released after posting bond and later pleaded guilty to the offense. And he was given a five-year suspended sentence, which is basically like probation. He has to maintain good behavior for five years. And if he can stay out of trouble the case would likely get dismissed. And that's usually, you know, what they would do for like first time offenders. But, um, this practice though has since been abolished only one month after his arrest, Robert and some friends were busted with marijuana and LSD in Johnson County. This time he wasn't able to post bond. So he spent five days in jail, but the case was later dismissed due to a lack of evidence. So in 1969, Robert ended up leaving the Kansas City Art Institute after feeling misunderstood by his teachers. Apparently, he received some harsh criticism after he killed and cooked a duck for the sake of art, like in front of the entire class. So he dropped out of school, but he stayed in Kansas City after he found a house within the Hyde Park District. At this point, his life began really kind of spiraling out of control. He was openly gay, but he started spending a lot of time and money with male prostitutes, drug addicts, and other criminals and runaways. According to Robert, though, he was just taking in these like lost souls in an effort to rehabilitate them. He even told his neighbors that he was like a foster parent to them, taking them in, taking them in, in hopes of freeing them from their demons. He maintained that he had no physical contact with them whatsoever. Work on your own demons. <laughs> no kidding. Lord. Yeah, good point. By 1980, he had lost a lot of his older friends because truthfully, they just started avoiding him and wanted nothing to do with them. So Robert really surrounded himself with younger men for a sense of companionship. According to his neighbors, Robert was really flamboyant and at times kind of arrogant, but he was very involved in the activities of the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association. He even became their chairman in the early 80s, encouraging neighborhood watch patrols. And this reminds me so much of the Jeffrey Epstein case when Jeffrey would donate a ton of money to the police department, likely to deter attention away from his own criminal behavior. I feel like that's probably what Robert's goal was here. Like, how could he be committing crimes when he's a chairman on the board of crime watchers, you know? Mm-hmm. Can't trust anybody these days, guys. Moral of the story. In addition to his volunteerism, he worked as a cook in some Casey restaurants and also sold various antiques and pieces of art that he collected throughout the years. And over the years as a cook, he worked his way up to becoming a senior cook at some of the renowned restaurants in the Kansas City area and even helped establish a training program for aspiring chefs at a local community college. But at the same time, his work in dealing antiques and pieces of art began to flourish and he started obtaining contracts with dealers. So this line of work began to eclipse his work as a chef. So he ultimately stopped working as a chef and began dealing art and antiques full time. So in 1982, Robert is now 33 years old, and he started renting his own booth at the Westport Flea Market, and he called it Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. He also became seriously involved with a Vietnam vet, but apparently this guy was really unstable, and their relationship just didn't work out. The booth at Westport made good money, but it was very unstable money. Some months he would make a lot, some months he'd make less. So he would resort to stealing and selling stolen goods and taking in roommates to help pay for expenses. So this is where he meets Jerry Howell. 
Jerry's dad, Paul, operated a booth next to Robert's. Initially, Jerry and his friends would make fun of Robert for being gay, but later Jerry would confide in Robert that sometimes Jerry and his friends would make extra money as male prostitutes. So Robert and Jerry developed a friendship, and Robert would offer Jerry legal and financial advice when Jerry would get into trouble, but what Jerry didn't realize was that he would soon become Robert's first victim. So on July 5th, 1984, Jerry reached out to Robert to ask him for a ride to a dance contest in Merriam, Kansas. According to Robert, he gave Jerry alcohol, Valium, and a sedative while Jerry was in the car and also while Jerry was at Robert's house. He continued giving him these cocktails of alcohol and drugs until Jerry finally became unconscious. Then he injected Larry with a tranquilizer and tied him to his bed. Yeah, this is where it starts to get rough. I warned Austin ahead of time that this was going to be a gruesome episode, and I told him if he wants to leave, he can. So if it gets silent, it's probably because he left. (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny. This is not funny at all. But um, anyway, Jerry was, I know. There's going to be people that go, how could you laugh? How dare you laugh? Oh, geez. I'm not laughing about the crime, people. Jerry was tied to Robert's bed for about 28 hours. During this time, Robert continued to drug him. He tortured him, raped him, and violated him with random foreign objects. According to Robert, Jerry kept asking him why he was doing this to him. And at one point, Jerry must have choked on his own vomit or suffocated on the gag that Robert put in his mouth because he stopped breathing. So Robert tried to give him CPR, but it didn't work. So Robert dragged Jerry's dead body down to his basement where he dismembered his body and put his body parts in various trash bags. And then he put the bags on the curb. The trash men, unsuspecting, picked up the bags and took them to a landfill. When Robert was questioned by police about Jerry's disappearance, Robert, Robert told them that he drove Jerry to the dance contest in Merriam, and that was the last time he ever saw him. So he what got away with it. That's awful. That the, whole thing is, like, disgusting and awful. Yeah. The following year, on April 10th, a former roommate who had stayed with Robert in the past showed up on his doorstep asking for a place to stay. His name was Robert Sheldon, so I'm just going to call him Mr. Sheldon so we keep the Roberts separate, but he was only 23 years old. Two nights after his arrival, Robert came home to find Mr. Sheldon drunk in his home, so he drugged him with sedatives and held him captive on the second floor of his home for three days. While he was bound, Robert would swab drain cleaner in his left eye. He stuck, this is the part you're going to hate. He would stick needles under his fingertips, like under his nail beds, and he would bind his wrists with piano wire in an effort to cause permanent nerve damage to his hands. What a freak. And then he filled his ears with caulking in an effort to deafen him. Three years later, on, or I'm sorry, three days later, on April 15th, a worker showed up to the house to do some repairs on the roof. Robert didn't want to risk the worker hearing Mr. Sheldon's cries for help, so he went to his room and put a bag over his head and suffocated him. He got rid of his body the same way he got rid of Jerry's, except this time he decided to keep his head and bury it in his backyard. 
The following year, on June 22nd, Robert found an acquaintance named Mark Wallace hiding in his tool shed to escape a thunderstorm. Robert invited Mark inside and offered him a place to stay. Robert noticed that Mark was super tense, so he offered him some medicine to calm his nerves. Mark accepted, and with that, Robert decided to hold him captive. He tortured him in similar ways, including attaching alligator clips to his nipples and electrocuting him whenever he felt like it. Mark ended up dying from what Robert assumed was a combination of drugs, the gag that he put in his mouth, or a lack of oxygen. And Robert would take diligent notes on each of his victims, describing every single thing he did to them and even included the time of death of his victims. He also noted that this wasn't something he did for pleasure, but rather a way to express frustration and anger that he had toward other people. So this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is obviously not how you handle or you cope with frustration and anger, but in his mind, this was like satisfying that frustration and anger. It's just so fucked up. So that September, Robert got a phone call from a man named James Ferris, who asked him if he could stay at Robert's home for a little while. Robert agreed, knowing he was going to hold him captive. Robert met James at a bar, and as soon as he brought him home, he crushed up tranquilizers and put them in his meal. He tied him to a bed and inflicted the same torture as he did the previous men. And in his notes to dictate that James had died, Robert wrote 86, which is a chef term, apparently, that's used for, like, throw it out or Makes stop it, the project. Like it's, or it's like if you want a burger with no pickles, you 86 the pickles. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. But it's also such a sad way to regard a human life. Right. So... The next victim, Todd Stoops, was a drug addict and occasional prostitute who would stay at Robert's house sometimes. Robert ran into him at Liberty Memorial Park on June 17, 1986, and invited him over to his house for lunch and a little sex. Robert was super attracted to Todd, unlike his past victims. So his captivity lasted for two weeks. During his second week of captivity, Todd asked Robert for a drink and a sandwich, to which Robert refused, and Robert noted that Todd then burst into tears. There are some details here that I am choosing to leave out because I just think it is seriously too much. If you're interested in more information, I got most of this information from Wikipedia and the links that were on Wikipedia. So if you want to know more, you can just go there, but I'm going to save you from it because it's pretty sick. Todd died on July 1st, 1986, likely from sepsis. What is sepsis? Sepsis is an infection that occurs sometimes in your stomach or inside your body, and it's often when like fecal matter ends up in your stomach. Like, for example, if you nick an intestine and feces. Yeah. So anyway, that's sepsis. His second to last victim, and I say that to let you know we're nearing the end, okay, His second to last victim lasted through the same torture for six weeks. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's a long time. A whole month and a half. Yeah. So weird. If you're out there, just like, we're like an hour from there, roughly. Yeah. It's just weird to think about. Like, I grew up near Merriam. I know where Liberty Memorial Park is. When you think about it, no matter where it happens, it's messed up. Yeah, but it is, it just adds a touch of like, I don't know. It just makes you realize how real it is, I guess. I don't know. 
Right. Yeah. It's just like fascinating, but in a really weird, bizarre way. I don't know. yeah. Yeah. Not in a good way. So his name was Larry Wayne Pearson, and he was only 20 years old. One night, Larry called Robert asking to bail him out of jail. He brought Larry to his house and did all the same shit he did to the last victims, but Larry was more cooperative than the other victims, so Robert didn't inflict as much torture upon him. That is, until in an act of despair, Larry bit into Robert's penis, screaming that he could not endure this treatment anymore. Robert went to the hospital and they told him he'd have to stay for a couple days. But before he chose to stay at the hospital, in an act of retaliation, Robert went home, killed Larry, and went back to the hospital to f- have surgery, I guess, to fix it. Once he got home, after that, he got rid of the body in the same way as all the others. He packed it up in trash bags, buried his head. Um, he buried Larry's head, but dug up Robert Sheldon's skull and chose to put it on display in his house. Gosh. On March 29th of 1988, Robert. I don't do anything but sit here and say, oh my gosh, I know. I know. I'm surprised you made it this far. On March 29th of 1988, Robert abducted his last victim, a 22 year old prostitute named Christopher Bryson. He brought him back to his house and knocked him unconscious with an iron bar. So you can tell his means of subduing these victims is becoming more and more barbaric. So then he held him captive for five days, torturing him just like he did the others. And over the course of a few days, Christopher was able to gain Robert's trust. So he convinced Robert to tie his, his hands in front of him rather than above his head because it was cutting off his circulation. The following day, he found a box of matches that Robert accidentally left in the room. Christopher used the matches to burn through the ropes on his wrist, and he jumped out the second floor window wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck. He broke his foot when he landed and still managed to run toward a meter reader who was working across the street. That person took him to a neighbor, and the neighbor ended up calling the police, and they took him to Menorah Menorah Medical Center. He told the police everything that had happened, so police monitored Robert's house until they were able to get a search warrant drafted that afternoon, and Robert was also, also arrested that same day, and investigators found the bedroom and the tools that Christopher described to corroborate his story. Police retrieved tons of evidence from Robert's house, including bones and teeth from some of his victims, 334 Polaroid pictures of his victims, a hacksaw and a meter saw, a chainsaw that was covered in blood, flesh, and pubic hairs. They did a luminol test to reveal any blood stains that were attempted to be cleaned up. And if you don't know, luminol is a chemical that illuminates with a black light when it comes in contact with blood after someone's tried to clean it up because there's certain enzymes that you just cannot clean. When they performed this test and they lit the black light, the basement lit up like the 4th of July. Yeah. That's crazy. So on July 22nd, 1988, a grand jury indicted and charged Robert for the murder of Larry Pearson, to which he pleaded guilty. And for this, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. On August 24th of that same year, he accepted a plea bargain to plead guilty to one charge of forcible sodomy against Christopher Bryan. 
or Bryson, which earned him another life sentence. And the following month on September 13th, Robert intended to plead not guilty to the other five murder charges, but his attorneys urged him to accept a plea deal that would allow him to avoid the death penalty. In this plea bargain, he agreed to confess in great detail who he killed, how he killed them, and what he did with their bodies. And in return for this information, the prosecuting attorneys agreed not to seek the death penalty. So a couple months later, he confessed all the details of each murder, which is how we have all this information now. And there's tons more you can find. I honestly kind of filtered it down for this episode. Um, And he was sent to the Missouri State Penitentiary. In 1992, he complained to a counselor that he felt the staff was hoarding his heart medications. And October... And on October 8th, 1992, he reported having chest pains, and this was around like 2 o'clock that day. He was taken from his cell to the prison infirmary, where the medical staff then called 911 for an ambulance. They took him to a hospital in Columbia, but he died at 355. He was 43 years old. And honestly, the only entertaining thing about this whole case is that when Robert died and Someone told the judge on his case that Robert had died. The judge said sarcastically, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Man. That's horrible. That's, that's, that's probably the worst <sighs> thing you've ever talked about. Yeah. Thanks, Ashley, for that. I was not expecting Kansas that. Kansas City Butcher. Yeah. Also known. Oh, yeah. So he also became known as the collector because of how that movie influenced him so what a madman. So strongly when he was little. Man, everybody have a Merry Christmas here this oh week. Oh my God, this week is Christmas. Good Lord almighty. So Christmas is on Friday, right? Yeah, I think so. I think it is. So um, usually we come out with an episode on Fridays, but I think I'm going to either come out with an episode on Thursday or Saturday just to give everyone a break on Christmas. You know, Christmas should be about not true crime. Not mystery. Christmas. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, thanks, Ashley, for the recommendation. If you have a case that you want me to cover on here, please reach out on our Instagram page, mama.mystery, or if you find my personal page even. Um, I love when people recommend cases to me because it takes a lot of work off my shoulders. And if you liked the episode, tell a friend. Yeah. Thank you so much, and have a great week. Mystery. Out. Bye. Bye.